All right, guys, what's going on? This is Jesse from Paroled from Hell, and we are on episode three, and this is our first official episode with uh, a guest. I have William Murata with me. Um, he runs a lot of the a big thing of fa- on Facebook. It's called Choose Freedom. I had just stumbled across him a while ago in the Facebook page itself, and started following it and we just kind of seen what was going on down there and uh so i'm pretty excited to have him on and see what he does and hear about what his past is and just to kind of show the more behind the scenes of what goes on because we there's a lot of shit that plays into our recovery which is why i wanted to do the podcast so uh i guess we'll just go ahead and say what's going on william what's going on man I'm really uh, grateful that you had me on here. I, I like this. I I think the title is wicked catchy. Um, so yeah, I'm definitely excited to be the first guest that you guys have on and and share a little bit about you know my story and what's going on. Okay, I think we're back and going now. Uh, we had a little bit of technical difficulty. It's the first time for everything. It's progress, not perfection, right? So uh, so yeah, uh, why don't you go ahead and. Uh, Tell everybody a little bit about yourself and where you came from and what you did to get where you are now. Cool. Yeah, I, uh, I'm 29 years old. I was born in a town called Wayne, New Jersey. It's about 15 miles west of New York City. I grew up in like a middle class neighborhood, middle class family. Um, my father was a police officer. I uh, started out in the child abuse unit ultimately became a narcotics officer. Uh, he's now retired. Uh, my mom was a stay at home mom until probably I was about 15. Um, and then she went back to work, took care of me my brother and sister. I'm the oldest of three. Uh, my brother is like, is 25 and my, or my brother's 26 and my sister's 24. Uh, you know, I think a lot of people, the reason I first started speaking out and I'm going to jump ahead a little bit and I'll keep this as condensed as possible. Uh, the reason that I first started speaking out was because I didn't have the story of getting high for the first time at 14 years old. Um, I wasn't like blackout drunk at, you know, 12. Um, you know, that just wasn't my story. I never had that story of like, you know, I was an alcoholic and an addict like long before I picked up drugs and alcohol. I think like once I crossed that, that threshold, uh, that was the case, but I had a great childhood, uh, growing up, I went to school. I was active in a lot of sports, uh, succeeded in a lot of sports. Uh, my family was very involved in the community. I spent, uh, hours a week at my dad's police station. Um, and really grew up in that type of environment of, uh, you know, law enforcement and politics and, uh, you know, all that. My uncle is, is now a retired politician. And, you know, I have family that was on the Board of Education in the state of New Jersey. And, and it just really was never the environment of drug abuse. Uh, now, with that said, um, in law enforcement specifically, you know, they have that uh, – people have this idea that 
police officers and firefighters abuse alcohol and they, they drink heavy. And um, there was definitely a lot of heavy drinking in my family growing up, but it was never anything that was out of control. It was never anything that uh, caused any harm to anyone. There was never like drinking and driving or violence or anything like that. It was just, you know, a lot of these guys that I grew up around that I considered family uh, were seeing trauma every day. Um, and their their way of coping with it was, you know, drinking five, six, seven beers after work or on the weekends. And, you know, I was taught right from wrong and I was taught to be respectful. And so I grew up and I went to school and I got good grades and, and I went away to college. And, uh, you know, I drank and, and smoked weed a couple of times before college. I definitely had um, all of the isms started to kind of come about and surface in my life when I was maybe like 18. And, and I think that was a, a combination of a lot of different things. You know, growing up, I had to live up to this expectation on myself to be like all these other family members in my life that were crazy successful and moving up the ladder in the companies that they were in and the police departments that they were in. And then um, at 16 years old, I broke my femur in a car wreck and I had lost out on the, the wrestling season I was I was in at that time and, and it was going to hinder the rest of high school. And I didn't get you know addicted to all the painkillers I was on. I didn't start smoking weed because I was anxious from sitting around the house. I just became, uh, I developed this victim mentality and I carried that around for a couple of years until I really started aggressively drinking around that age of like 18 or 19. And, you know, so I go away to school and I start drinking more and, and I'm almost immediately a blackout drunk and it spiraled out of control pretty quickly. Um, you know, and, and but somehow I, I managed to get good grades and I managed to push through it and, so I, you know, I, I get done with school and I, I move back to New Jersey and uh, I land a really good job and I'm out of college and I have a good job. And at this point, I had tested incredibly high to become a police officer. Um, so I'm kind of just like waiting for that to, to fall into place and I'm aggressively drinking and, you know, I'm smoking weed here and there and every once in a while cocaine comes around or you know, pain pills or Xanax. And it's not something that's I'm using all the time. And I justified that like, Oh, look, as long as I'm drinking and I'm showing up for work, everything's okay. Um, you know, and that job that I had was great. And, and ultimately, uh, that was the, the middle of a relationship that I was in. And, um, the relationship was going well. The job was going well. And right around that time, I started to like consecutively have blackouts. I started to like go from like one blackout on the weekend to like blacking out on Friday and Saturday and being so hungover on Sunday. Uh, and, you know, it took a couple months. And, and finally, uh, that first that first time I can remember it perfectly, I was so hungover on Sunday that I missed work on Monday. And I panicked. And uh, I was probably about 21 at the time. And, 
And at this point I had been messing around with everything else, but alcohol was the primary substance that I was going to abuse because I loved the effects produced by alcohol. And so I was like, okay, no more. I was like, no more drugs. Um, I'm not going to drink to the point of being hungover. Um, I need to focus on work. And I found that the second that I tried to stop and couldn't, uh, all bets were off. I had lost more confidence. I had lost more self-esteem. And ultimately, uh, that was what progressed my alcoholism and my addiction. And I think that's like a big misconception in the community itself and probably across the country at this point. Like the, the alcoholism and addiction, like the drugs and the alcohol themselves uh, weren't the problem. They were the solution to everything that was going on inside of my head. And so I, I try to stop and I can't, so I panic and, and I go back to drinking almost immediately. Um, you know, from there, I'm now I'm introduced to like heavy oxys and I start to lose focus on everything that is important to me that I thought was important to me as a kid growing up. I want to be married. I want to have a house. I want to have kids. I want to have a career. And like one by one, all of those things start to unfold. And um, the credit that I was building towards buying a house, I completely threw down the window, threw out the window when, you know, I took out a loan and used it all on drugs. And, and the girl that I thought I was going to marry, I was unfaithful with. And, and all of these little things that, uh, interfered with my core values started to eat me alive more and more. Um, you know, so I go on this like run of like six or seven months and it's mostly just alcohol and oxys and that relationship ends. And, uh, in that time frame, I miss out on becoming a police officer. Uh, I let my family down time and time again. And, um, there's like one story I tell like very often. And, uh, I got sober January 30, 2014. I have a little less than four and a half years. And um, in May of 2012, uh, my family was taking me out to dinner for my birthday. And I was withdrawing the morning of and I couldn't get out of bed. I was incredibly dope sick. And my drug dealer hits me up and I got to go across town to, to pick up drugs. And, and I end up late for my own birthday dinner. And I'm texting my mom, like, I'm in traffic. I'll be there. I'll be there. I'll be there. And I show up like 45 minutes late and nothing needed to be said. Like I walked in with my head down, my eyes pinned and everyone knew. And, and May of 2012 was really like the start of like the, the downward spiral and so I end up losing the, the career that I have or the job that I, I have that I'm in love with. And I spend a lot of the next year um, bouncing from job to job and um, bouncing from place I'm living at to place I'm living at. And in that time frame, uh, my dad was upset. My dad was not let down. I don't think parents are ever like let down by their kids. My dad was upset, so he uh, he locked me in a house, took away my phone for 21 days, and said, "We're gonna we're gonna kick this thing, we're gonna get through this." And looking back, I think that was like the 
the greatest thing that anyone's ever done for me. Um, I didn't get along with my dad for a while and I'll get to that like in my recovery. Um, he kept me company in the bathroom. I was, you know, throwing up and, um, took me to the vitamin store to get vitamins and made sure I was hydrated and, and took me to meetings. Um, the issue with me was that it was only 21 days and I probably needed a significant amount of time to really build some confidence back. So on day 22, I get a job, I go back to work and I get high that night. And from that point until almost three years into my recovery, I didn't speak to my father. Um, because the following May of 2013 on Father's Day, uh, I'm out at a bar with my brother, a couple people, uh, my ex-girlfriend at the time, and um, a guy hits my girlfriend at the time, punches her in the face. Wow. And I freak out, and I, st I start fighting. And at this point, I'm like 135 pounds soaking wet, and I'm not going <laughs> to fight anyone and win. Um, I get thrown down a flight of steps. I get, you know, absolutely beaten to a pulp, and my brother jumps in and uh, I wrote about this not too long ago. I honestly don't even know how many hits my brother had to take to get the fight to completely stop, but it resulted in the cops being called at like four o'clock in the morning, my dad being woken up and having to address all of this. And the next day we're at my dad's for, for Father's Day and him and I really still aren't speaking. And I say happy Father's Day and, and I leave and I go on a run from then until around Thanksgiving time of 2013. And um, I think there's a lot of different ways that people can explain bottom personally. Uh, Thanksgiving, 2013, I stole $30 from my mom and I used it to buy heroin in Los Angeles, California. And she caught me $30. Wow. Um, she did an intervention with me in Arizona. I fly back to New Jersey, my parents think everything is good. I get off the plane and my drug dealer gives me a call, says he's got, you know, some drugs and, and I go on the worst run of my life. And, and everything that I say I'm never going to do, I do. And every drug I say I'm never going to use, I use. And, and I find myself at the absolute worst place I believe a person can be at. And, um, you know, I, I was introduced to a needle briefly. Um, I'm grateful that, you know, I, I got help before I ultimately spiraled out of control, but I ended up, you know, using meth, using heroin, sleeping in crack houses. And at this time I'm seeing this therapist cause my parents are like adamant that he can help me. And on January 29th of 2014, my parents showed up at my therapist's office and told me to stop using drugs. And that was exactly how they said it. Um, my dad said, if you don't stop using drugs, you'll never have your family back. My mom said, I need you to stop using drugs because I don't want to bury you. And I walked out of that office with a sense of relief. And the next day I went away to treatment for, I was there for a while. I think I was there like 130 something days. And I've been sober since. And, um, you know, I wish I could sit here and say that it was like smooth and the transition to 
running around like an idiot to, to getting sober and being sober for this long was smooth, but it wasn't. Um, I battle from depression and bipolar disorder. Um, and for a lot of the first two years, I continued to spiral. I just like wouldn't pick up drugs. I don't know what happened, but I was 24 years old and my parents told me to stop using drugs and I listened. I, I honestly don't know how that came to be, but I couldn't get all of the bipolar and all of the, uh, you know, trauma and all of that stuff truly resolved. So I continue to spiral. I, I live in sober living for like a year and two months, a year and three months. And I land a job at BMW, um, as part of their marketing team. And I'm like blowing it out of the water. And, and I think this is like the first time I like truly feel like peaceful and I'm loving everything that's going on. And I'm now a 25 year old kid in recovery. And what happens? I walk into a meeting and there's a bunch of 22 year old girls and, um, <laughs> you know, and I meet a girl that has like 37 minutes sober. Of course. <laughs> and we immediately hook up and that I got so sick. And I, uh, I'm grateful that we both stayed sober through the entire thing. The relationship was terrible. The relationship was so ugly. Um, and, and that's why I think I'm so adamant about some of the stances I make now, because like I've, I've been through those things. And so for the better part of the first like three years of my recovery, I truly like battle all this depression and all this trauma and, um, You know, I went to work for this marketing company after BMW and the company ended up like closing down the division that I was working in. So I was left unemployed and I started writing and posting things on the internet. I didn't really know what else to do at that point. Um, I, I felt like I was at like a crossroads of my life and my career and I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do at that point. And uh, so I started a company called Choose Freedom. And... For the longest time, it was just a WordPress blog. I would go on there and I'd write a bunch of things down. And then I, you know, I ended up making a Facebook page and a group. And, and now it's actually like an incorporated company. Um, selfishly, I started that because I needed relief. I needed to like talk about the things that were bugging me. And I needed to talk about all of... Uh, the things that I saw wrong with everything that was going on. And I, one day, I, I guess before I had the Facebook page or anything like that, I copied part of the blog and I put it on Facebook and it went viral and people started paying attention to what I was talking about and what I was saying. And, um, I felt like I felt important again. I felt like I was, I was getting validation from all of that. Right. So eventually that wears away. And I see that it's just internet validation and it's complete garbage. And um, I find myself like in the midst of like a really bad self-harm battle where I, I can't stop cutting myself and I can't stop um, inflicting pain or self-sabotage self in the relationships I'm in or family relationships or whatever it is. And I, uh, you know, I reach what I think is like an emotional bottom for me. And 
at that point, I like had this therapist in, in South Carolina and I think she was like 165 years old. Um, <laughs> she had been in the field, like she'd been in the field for like 40 years and we talked back and forth for like an hour, hour and a half. She would sometimes let my session go two hours and I don't know what it was, but it was probably like eight months ago now, nine months ago now. She looked me square in the eyes and she was like, how many other kids in their 20s do you think struggle with all of this? And I was like, probably a lot. I was like, if I had a guess, I was like, it's not really normal for like mid 20 year olds to be abusing drugs and, you know, even getting sober. And she's like, I think you need to share that with people. So I started sharing about all the things that I was terrible at. And all the things that I needed to get better at. And it completely changed the dynamic of what I saw this vision as, as a company. And it completely changed a lot of the relationships I had in my life. Because I was never going to, at that point in my life, I was never going to back away from the negativity that I had brought on myself. Uh, I spent a lot of time reading and a lot of time listening to podcasts. Um, and that's why I was so excited that, that you had started this because I think in podcasts, right? And I think a lot of people waste time when they're driving or they're laying in bed or, or whatever they're doing, running. Um, in a lot of podcasts, you can hear like one or two sentences from somebody else's voice. And for some reason, it resonates a whole lot more. Oh, yeah. And I listened to this podcast that Forbes magazine had done and they had talked about how the decade of your twenties is the hardest decade that you're going to face in your life. And I don't know, I, I can't speak from experience if that's true or not. I'm only 29. I'm hoping that my thirties is easier than my twenties, but I thought like, okay, if here are people that are experienced in mental health and drug addiction, and they're saying that like this age group is a struggle anyway and now we're taking people that are using substances or people that are new in recovery and and we're telling them to face life as well yeah it gets, it gets hard and uh so the dynamic changed and the vision changed for everything and I, I took this focus of like talking about all of my struggles um to making sure that people didn't struggle themselves and, and that's where like the vision of the company has gone and, and all the money that we bring in in profits get dumped back into sober livings for uh, transportation for jobs or for clothes or for food or whatever it is that, you know, a kid in their 20s in recovery or not in recovery is going to struggle with. And that was like the that is the end goal, because if I look at my life at 20, let's say I'm 29 now. If I look at my life at 27 years old, um, I needed new clothes. Um, I needed to get back and forth to work cause I didn't have my license at that point because I had lost it. And, uh, maybe I wanted a new tattoo every once in a while. So I like had a balance, uh, you know, an income and, and all this and that, and it gets stressful. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, so I wanted to find a way to, to make sure that it wasn't as stressful for people coming in. And so a lot of the sober homes that we partner up with, um, we buy them, we buy the house food. 
We buy the house like endless amounts of groceries so that these kids that are not as fortunate as I am to have, you know, college experience and job experience and can make good money. These kids that are like legitimately trying to get back on their feet, making $10 an hour, don't have to worry about buying dinner. Yeah. That's one more thing. And I think as, as you get further in your recovery and as you get further in your life, the more things that you can achieve, the more confident you're going to be. Oh yeah. That's, that's, I, I agree with that completely because you know, where I'm standing <clears throat> through my own entire addiction, like I had, you know, I, I had a job and I had a, you know, I worked at the last the place I worked at in my, in my addiction was I worked in a lab. So like I, you know, I wore the lab coats and, you know, <clears throat> I made really good money. And, you know, like you were saying earlier when you were working or when, when you said that you were working and you were like, Oh, if I'm just drinking, it's fine. Like I had convinced myself that just because I was shooting dope in the hot room of the work, I was at work. So I was doing all right. You know, and it's, and it's, <laughs> yeah. it's something that we blind ourselves with, but you know, now that, cause I got back into the same field and, mm -hmm. you know, because like, I didn't have, I still don't have my license. Like I ride my bike back and forth to work. Like, but I had that experience to follow up. So when I could land the job I'm in now, I don't have to worry about like, I have an apartment I've got, you know, I'm able to take care of that shit, but that is a problem that we have is, you know, these people, especially up here, like kids they're for one, I could not imagine getting sober at 20 or 21. And we have a lot of that age group here in Wichita. And because my twenties sucked, <laughs> like it sucked. <laughs> yeah. and you know, I got sober at 30 and so like I kind of have a better mentality and a better space to process this shit. But the 23 year old Jesse would have been, it's dramatic ratchet, like, <laughs> like, like out of control. I can't yeah. imagine trying to deal with life the way we deal with it now back then. And, yeah. but we, but we do, we have a lot, we have a lot of people here that, land the minimum hour minimum wage jobs making 750 an hour and they've got fines they've got rent they've got all this stuff that they're trying to do and a lot of them have lost a lot of their families and you know because like with me my family took a step back until i was somewhat on my feet again because yeah. i had done this before you know oh i'm gonna get sober i'm gonna get sober but i'm gonna do it on my time, but I still want you to take care of everything for me. Yeah. And so I kind of had that hard lesson of, well, at least your turn to shine. Like you're either going to do it or you're not. So it's really yeah. cool that you guys are doing that down there. Yeah. I think, um, you know, it's crazy. And I, and I've heard a lot of things about, uh, Wichita specifically and, and a lot of areas up North. Um, you know, Dallas itself down here in Texas, it's a tight knit community. There are a lot of young people. There are. Um, but I will say this. Um, we do. We have a lot of people that come in at 23 years old with nothing. And dude, those are those are heavy odds against you. It's, you know, at 23 years old and, um, you know, I, 
I'll bring it up for like a second and, and I don't want to like get off track, but my, my girlfriend got sober at 28, 27, maybe I think 27. Yeah. 27. And, um, she had a supportive family. She had supportive friends. Um, but she was facing life in prison. So she came out with literally nothing and had to like work her way up to the point of being able to sustain and being able to um, afford the things that she wants and, and get back and forth to work and have a car payment and like all of those things. And when you look at the end result of my, my girlfriend, for example, like here's this like beautiful girl who has a car and a phone and pays rent and pays all of her fines and this and that. And people see that end result and they're like, Oh, look what recovery has done. What they don't see is like the three years of her, like barely getting by, barely being able to like afford groceries, not getting back and forth to work because she didn't have enough gas. Like those are all things that people are missing when they, they see this. Like I wish addiction recovery was like as, as like putting a line yeah. and like you cross over and everything goes away, but that's, that's unfortunately not the case. So what that's what my girlfriend and I do a lot of time. That's what we spend a lot of our time doing is bridging that gap because we understand that like coming into recovery, you're going to have the baggage that you need to clean up and you're going to have all the stresses of wanting to move forward. Yeah. Um, and that's been, you know, that was my experience with it. And that's like, dude, it's still a headache, yeah, right? Like man. four and a half, you know, four and a half years in about to buy a house. Um, you know, a business that's growing. I mean, it's still a nightmare. It's still something that like, there are days where it's like, how do I overcome this? How do I overcome that? How do I, how do I get through this so that like my experience will actually help somebody else, but it won't kill me, yeah. you know? And that's, that's been the biggest part of my recovery is kind of learning as I go and, and hoping that, this is like egotistical to say, and, and I have said this publicly before, but I don't want to be somebody that's 50 years old, that's come in and out a million times and, and has to be living in sober living away from his kids. And, and I don't want that. I get 20 to 30 of those calls a day where like a mom is trying to get her kids back from child services. Like I, I want to mess up as much as I possibly can now yeah, and learn everything I can now, because when I finally put myself in the position of having all of the things I want, a family, a house, kids, all that stuff, I don't want to mess up. Yeah. And, and I think that's maybe it's future thinking, maybe it's projecting, but that's like what's kept me so humble and, and so excited to like keep fixing all of these little failures along the way. Yeah. Well, you know, they say that life doesn't stop. You know, you still have to deal with life on life's terms. And, <clears throat> you know, I, one thing that I always say is that I don't, I don't plan my life, you know, because I mean, you never know what the fuck's going to happen tomorrow, but yep. I, I do, I do plan my recovery. I replan how to react to situations and how to deal with this. And because if that's going to, if life's going to throw me a certain curveball, I need to know how to hit it. You know, and, yep. and I do I do agree with um, trying to figure this shit out young because mm -hmm. then I'll have, a you know, a better chance of being more successful later on. 
and because I don't, I don't want to be that. Like, I don't want to be that fifty-year-old who's been in other rooms like twenty times, and when they walk in, like everybody loves you, but then they're just like, "All right, like, are you gonna get it? Like, are you gonna do the work this time? You know?" And that's why, that's why I do the things that I do. So if I have to fall back on something, I have a, I have accountability. And B, like I've, I've done the work, so I know what to do. And, you know, because life sucks. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. it, re- it really can be hard sometimes. But, uh, I mean, it's, I, I do like what pretty much everything you've said about the company. Like that's really, I didn't know a lot of that stuff. So that's really cool to find out like the, the outreach kind of stuff. Because that's what this is all about, you know, like we're giving back what was so freely given to us. And, yeah. you know, sometimes it's as, as small as a smile or as big as a fucking sack of groceries, you know, stuff like that. And because I needed the help when I was when I first got sober and I, there were people there to do it, you know, mm-hmm. and so that's why one big reason why I wanted to do this was because. Like, just to get the word out a little more that, like, it's sucks, but it's worth it. You know, it, it's hard. Yeah. It's worth it. You know, it, there's nothing. Yeah. There's nothing that none of us can achieve. You know, like, we, like, there you you find out how talented you are or how fucking strong-willed you are when you get sober. And <clears throat> it's amazing that we all come from this crazy background and you know with the teamwork that people do you know the the organizations and just like the meeting halls and they were all built on just more than one person and yeah and and one person can start an idea that 20 people get on and then you have a movement you know and that's yeah like I know that there's uh, that movement going out now. It's called uh, Recovery Out Loud. Like, because mm-hmm. there's, there's still that stigma of, oh, you're an alcoholic or you're an addict and you're automatically a piece of shit. And, you know, and it's, that's not it at all. Like, I had uh, a conversation with one of the girls that I did the walk with this, this morning. And, her girlfriend has to register for 15 years as a drug offender. And like, I didn't know that they had all these crazy, like they have to put uh, that she's an offender on her license and everything like that. And so, and we were talking about how, when people initially see that you automatically, you get painted as this person and it doesn't matter what you do to to better yourself if you if if once they see that that's that automatic you get stamped with this disapproval like you're nothing like and it's i personally pisses me off <laughs> because like yeah <laughs> i used to be that junkie but i'm not a junkie anymore you know and and it's because i took the steps to get my life back in order and anybody can change if you do the fucking work, you know, like, yeah. and a lot of people don't, they, they see recovery as like just for, uh, 
addicts or alcoholics. And fuck, I wish more people worked the steps. (laughs) Because like I'll process stuff, especially at work, I'll process stuff with somebody and they're like, well, fuck, I never looked at it like that. I'm like, well, it's in my mind, it's common sense because it's the first thing I go to. And Mm. like a lot of people just react out of emotion and out of anger. And it's, it's, it's such a crazy thing. And it's such a crazy world that we live in, you know, and, you know, like you were asking me earlier about the, the equality march we did this morning and, Mm. It's pretty much just equality for anybody, you know, gay, trans, white, black, yellow, green, anybody. And because we're all humans, like there's not, there's nothing different. What people do behind closed doors, unless you want to be involved in it, then there's not really anything that's any of your concern. And as a society, we don't understand privacy. You know, and especially with social media and everything like that, like there really is no more privacy in this world. And and so just being able to be involved in something like that just gives me more fuel for my recovery. You know what I mean? And like, so we, I, when I first got sober here, there was no LGBT meetings here. I think there was one and I think they had like died out before I got sober. And so like, you know, my first initial thought was like, oh, I'm going to go and, you know, I'll find me a boyfriend or something like that. And so I'm glad that there wasn't one right away. And so it, it was put on my heart to start something like that. And so the people that walked with me this morning are people, a part of the group that, I started here in town and uh, the group's called safety. I can't say what organization it's through uh, traditions, but uh, it's called safety. And I wanted it to be a safe place for people because I know that in our community, it runs, especially meth. Like it really runs rampant with the whole party and play and like that whole crazy side of it. And so I, wanted to start getting the word out there that just because you're gay does not mean you can't get sober, you know? And like, <clears throat> might sound egotistical on my side, but once that group really took off, we have an influx of gay people coming in the rooms now. And I know it's not me, but, and I have to constantly remind myself that, I it did not make the group that what it is God stepped in and but it's it's such an awesome thing to have that boom into something else and so I'm all about the service work and the outreach and getting your name out there and that's how that's how you that's how people see what we're doing like, cause we could sit here and be quiet and I can just sponsor people in the rooms and I can just do this, but I'm only reaching those certain people that I have direct contact with. And yeah. which is why I wanted, which is why I started this because it's got to be out there. We got to start broadcasting the fact that it, you don't have to sit in that hell. You don't have to sit there. You don't, 
you can get out of it, you know, and if a dope junkie like me can get out of it, then anybody can. So, uh, yeah, I agree, man. I think that's, and you know what, man, it's, it's a shame in, in a lot of aspects because so many people have ideas like you have and they're afraid to do it because of it failing or because not people, people not getting on board or whatever it is. And, and I'll tell you this story and yeah, I'm going to like keep a lot of it anonymous because it's, I don't have permission to like just broadcast that all over the place. But, but my buddy opened a uh, sober home down here and great dude. I looked to him for a lot and uh, we meet for dinner for like someone else's birthday one night and he has three houses now. And I was like, how are the houses going? This and that. And, and I called him one day because uh, he said he had a couple beds open and, and they were like just a, a structured, sober living that we're trying to help people. And I was like, I have a problem. And he's like, what? He's like, what, what can we get through? And I was like, I have a kid that's 25 years old. Um, his drug of choice is meth. He's gay. And everywhere he goes, he doesn't feel like he's a part of. And he's like, yo, Will, you want to hear the craziest thing? And I'm like, what? He's like, I have one house of only gay people. And I was like, like, that's like what you started? Or that's like, how did that? And he was telling me a story that like one kid moved in there and was like, I don't care if you guys are straight and I'm gay. Like I'm trying to get sober and like, it doesn't matter to me. And within the span of like three and a half weeks, all these kids in this community started to like rally around that specific house. And, and yeah, it wasn't like that one kid that moved in and decided to say, fuck it. But, um, it did, you know, him not having that fear started something huge because that house and I, I, my girlfriend and I talk about it all the time. That house has some of the best recovery in the area because they're fearless. They've already overcome so much. And they legitimately weren't afraid to take a chance on something knowing that it, it could fail. And I think that's like the most important thing in the world, because when I was trying to get sober, you know, in that span of addiction and I kept saying, like, I'm going to get help, I'm going to get help, I'm going to get help. Every single time I didn't follow through with it, it was because I either said, like, fuck it, I'm not deserving of this or I'm afraid I'm going to get sober and my life's still going to suck. And it wasn't until I let go of those two ideas and like finally jumped into it where like my life started to succeed and I started to have successes after successes. And I'm not talking about like, I think a lot of people get sober and they have this idea like, okay, I'm sober. I need a car. I need a house. I need $200 shoes, a nice watch and this and that. And like, dude, th those things are great. I'm not going to say that they're not. The reality is, is like, Dude, I wanted my parents' trust back. I wanted my sister to call me every once in a while. I wanted to call my brother and have him pick up the phone. I wanted my family to want to come visit me. I, I wanted all of the things that like we should want to feel as people. We want to feel loved by those closest to us. We want to feel counted on. Um, we want to feel like we're achieving something in the eyes of the people that do love us. And and that was really like the turning point for me. And, and I think that's the turning point for a lot of a lot of these people. So if you look at, and we were having this conversation this morning over messenger about, you know, the LGBTQ community as a whole. And 
to be completely honest, dude, in Texas, it's not super welcomed. Yeah. Nothing is. Like, if you're not a white Christian land-owning male, you're, <laughs> you're, probably against, you're probably against odds in Texas. And that's just the reality of being in the Bible Belt, right? Yeah. Um, but you find these little areas of Texas where, like, that community is so strong that it's, like, in turn made the recovery community stronger. And the community itself. Um, you know, I, like I said, I grew up in New Jersey and I grew up in a melting pot, man. Like no one gave a shit if you were black or purple or gay or straight or six feet tall or four feet tall. Um, and I'll always say that like the, the loyalty of people in New Jersey to others in New Jersey is incredible because it's just like, we had each other's back because everyone was just okay with everyone. And so that's why I love what you guys are doing in Wichita because it's like, it's such a movement that's needed um, nationwide. Yeah. Right. Like, and that's the thing that frustrates me about living here because I do love this place. This is, you know, this is the place I'm going to call home for the rest of my life. Uh, The reality is though, there's still so much that needs to be done and you could have the possible, the strongest possible, LGBTQ community in Oklahoma and it doesn't necessarily mean that Texas is going to accept it. So that's why I love what you're doing. And I love that, you know, I love the concept behind reaching out and and not being anonymous and talking about all the other issues that are important because at the end of the day, like we get sober and then we still have all of these other issues. Like, you know, I openly talk about suicide. I I lost my best friend to, to suicide seven, eight years ago now. Um, I tried to kill myself in recovery once. Um, and when I talk to people about that, they're like, why don't you just give it to God? And I'm like, if your solution is to just always give it to God, like you're going to leave a lot of people pissed off one and two, like, we're not like actually making anyone feel welcomed when they're in that mindset, because I don't know about you, but for me personally, when I was getting high or when I feel outcasted in general, the last thing I want to hear is give it to God. Yeah. I want to hear from somebody else that can relate to me, whether it's, you know, friends that are friends that reach out to me that are black and they want other people that are black to talk to, whether it's someone that's gay that wants other people that are like, whatever it is. Um, I feel like human connection is ultimately the, the solution to the world's problems. Yeah, it really is. And you know, it's, it's, when I first got sober, the word God scared the shit out of me. And so like now I've come to terms with my spirituality, but I try not to push, especially like with sponsees that I don't push the God issue until you're there. You know, like if you would have told me, give it to God when I first got sober, I would have been like, kiss my ass. I don't get that. I don't understand it. And if I don't understand it, I'm automatically going to hate it. And so it's, that's that fine line between like what's right and what's not right. So, but yeah, yeah, no, I, I completely agree with what you're saying. Yeah, man, I think, uh, you know, the end goal in all of this is to like not have my phone going off every minute of every day with people that are struggling, right? That's, that should be the end goal of all of it. If your end goal is money or if your end goal is fame, um, 
you're going to fail quickly because people will see right through that. And, and the way that I've built so many relationships and the way that I've made it so easy for people to reach out to me is because one, I'm probably never going to be rich and famous. I've just crossed that one off yeah. <laughs> um, unless I win the lottery and I don't play it. So I have no chance. Right. Um, so my next, my next, the best bet after that is to just actually give a shit about people. And, and I feel like, you know, I can't speak for all communities. I can't speak for like a lot of what's going on because I live in Dallas and I will say this, like dude, the community here itself hates failure, hates burying their friends and hates relapse. Yeah. And like, it's not something, like I said, I know they're all sensitive subjects, but like, dude, we're in it. Like we're, I'm not, and it's not a me thing. It's not, dude, it's not even a we thing. Like we have the community itself and then everyone's parents and loved ones and friends of friends and friends. And like, you know, last night I get a phone call that a kid's about to relapse in an Oxford house and, and I don't even know where they're at. So I call my girlfriend who calls her friend who calls like the chapter secretary and then they call the house manager and before we know it i'm at the house and hanging out and the kid doesn't relapse and he's in church this morning whatever it is dude whatever the whatever we need to do to get to the outcome of like people not dying um and people feeling accepted is like what needs to be done exactly like they if, if i can't step up and do my part and like i said sometimes it's the smallest thing you know but like we go to any length and that's, mm -hmm. that's, that's how I live my life. Like, like there are times like, okay. So with this March and everything like that, like we made shirts, <clears throat> I work until 2 AM, right? Every night this week, I was up until like seven or eight making shirts because it's little shit like that. That sounds so stupid, but somebody saw that shit today, you know, and, mm -hmm. and they make that connection and you could be fucking saving somebody's life, you know, and yeah, it's a sacrifice that I'm willing to make, you know, to do anything to help anybody. Like I, I help people that reach out for help that I'm not huge fans of, but it's my duty in my line of work because <clears throat> I'm not, I don't get paid for it. I don't, I get paid for it in my spiritual bank. You know, mm -hmm. one of my favorite quotes, one of the first things I ever heard when I got sober was be the ripple of change that you want to see in the world. And that stuck with me. Like if yeah. I have to do what I have to do just to make the smallest ripple that could turn into a tidal wave, like that's what I'm going to do, you know, and that tidal wave could be in a community. It could be in somebody's life. You know, or even just somebody's day. Like, that's what I strive to do. And that's what we're, that's what our duty is. Like, yeah. I got sober, so I'm going to help the next one get sober. And I agree, man. Yeah. So, I love that. Yeah. Well, uh, I guess we're I'm getting close on time. Is there anything that you want to plug or? talk about like with choose freedom uh not really man i mean i think we covered it all um i'm not one to like truly go out of my way to say go check us out um hopefully you know people heard something that they really like and they can relate to um 
And hopefully, you know, if you're listening to this and you're struggling, whether it be addiction, race, sexuality, um, mental health, just reach out. And then I've always said that, like, dude, I'm not always going to have the answers. You know, I'm not going to always have the best advice. Chances are, though, from being around as long as I have been now, I know someone who will have all the answers. Yeah. And I know someone that and that was like the one thing that and another thing, like, I don't want to talk a lot about 12 step fellowships, because I know that some people believe in them, some people don't. Um, if you're in a 12 step fellowship, make sure you get a sponsor that you think the world of. If you're not in a 12 step fellowship, get somebody in your life that you think the world of, whether it be a therapist, a life coach, a mentor, whatever it is, because I'll tell you this. Um, I have a sponsor that I think the world of. I truly do think that, uh, he walks on water and I, I joke about that a lot. Um, and you know what, when I go to him with something, Nine times out of 10, he doesn't say anything that I wasn't already thinking. Yeah. Um, he just says like what's worked for him and how he got through it. And and that's because I think the world of him, I get through it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's about it. Like I said, if, if you're struggling, just it gets better. It gets a lot better every day. And um, the days that you don't think are great, I promise you'll learn something from them. Yeah. Well, thank you for uh, coming on. It was really cool to have you be the first one to do this with me and, you know, just to keep pushing forward and keep putting that word out there that we're doing the damn thing and that anybody can do it. And, you know, like there, there is another side of hell, you know, and so <clears throat> thank you again for coming. Uh, you guys can. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Thank you. Uh, you guys can find my podcast on, I'm now on iTunes, which was really cool. Uh, Stitcher. And of course, go on to Facebook at Paroled from Hell and get on there. And if you like it, like it. If you don't like it, like it. Like, share it so we can get the word out there to keep going and really just succeed in life. So. All right, guys, thanks for listening and uh, have a good rest of your night.